What we never want to do is uplift our students and exclude our families. When you are very thoughtful and intentional about engaging with the families, it only leads to positive outcomes in terms of student success. I'm Dr. Lamont Repolette, the president of Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. This is Urban Impact, a podcast where we examine the complex issues facing urban communities through meaningful conversations with scholars, community leaders, and others who are driving change. Recorded and produced on our campus in Union, New Jersey, this is Urban Impact. Here are your hosts, Michael Salvatore and Barbara George Johnson. Today on Urban Impact, we're talking about education. More specifically, something called the two-generation strategy approach. Welcome to Urban Impact. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to speak to our guests this morning. Oh, I'm excited too, Barbara, uh, because this is this is certainly my passion in this field. I'm excited about our guest today. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sancha Gray, the Senior Vice President, this is a mouthful, for Entrepreneurial Education Initiatives at Kane University. Welcome to Urban Impact, Dr. Gray. So delighted to be here. I'm truly in awe of the work that Dr. Sansha Gray has done. She started teaching sixth and seventh grade math, and she continued her work all the way through to superintendent of schools. And as a result, she really has learned uh, the need of literacy outcomes for those who are underrepresented, historically marginalized students of color, but also adult literacy for parents. And I know there are a number of interesting uh, initiatives that Dr. Gray has spearheaded uh, since her time here at Kane. So I'm looking forward, Mike, to hearing a lot more about this work that's been going on from this awesome woman that we're talking to today. Dr. Gray, we know that you are super passionate about education. So how has your past experience, first as a teacher and then as an administrator, helped frame the work that you're doing today? I have to actually go back to being a student. Uh, It was my experience as a student that caused the passion that I had and brought into the space as a teacher. Um, And even as a substitute teacher first in the space of K-12 instruction. And so I um, really enjoyed and had very early on as a child a love of learning, especially in elementary school. It started to become a little different, my experience, when I reached middle or at that time um, in space, being a product of New York City Public Schools, we call it junior high school. So by junior high school and then high school, my my passion for learning was very different. It shifted and it wasn't as positive. And so I, I understood early on that in order to effectuate change and create really awesome learning experiences, the best way to do that would be to become a superintendent. So I, I early on wanted to be a superintendent, but it was shared that there's a process to that. And the process would be uh, starting with being a teacher would be helpful to learn that um, the ecosystem for education and navigate that terrain. And so it was difficult for me um, going into education because at that time I was making a career change and it um, I was already a working mom and a wife. And so wanting to go into that space meant I would have a lot of the credits that I had started earlier at college not count. So I went through the alternate route, but I also bundled it with being a substitute teacher, 
which provided a wealth of exposure for me and afforded me an opportunity to really see different grade levels of interest. And it was then where it was solidified and cemented for me, my love for middle school and high school. And um, why it was so important then to provide experiential learning opportunities in that particular space uh, to really provide the rigor that I felt I missed when I was in junior high school and high school. It's not uncommon for uh, young females in school to talk about how they become disengaged in junior high school and how that continues through high school. Uh, but I, your experience, as, as, uh, as common as it may be, it becomes unique because you actually lifted yourself. Uh, you became engaged in a way later on because you were inspired maybe to not have that uh, experience carried out through other people. The disengagement was so high that I wound up be, being a high school dropout. I dropped out of high school because I, um, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't fathom this idea and notion of of not having the experiential learning opportunities that I was so craving. I didn't know to phrase it that way, right? I had no concept of what ELOs were, you know, being a high school student. I just knew that more work wasn't, it wasn't what I was looking for. And uh, being a product of New York City public schools, I had the whole city at my disposal. And um, I would spend a lot of time just kind of learning, work, walking around Manhattan and just, just creating opportunities and experiences for myself. And so when I think about um, being blessed to be in this space today and bringing all of that into this role as the senior vice president for entrepreneurial education, it's worth kind of explaining that to lend context to why the passion is so great for me. Um, I grew up in an urban community um, that was a traditionally a Southern Black community. Um, and overnight, it became a Caribbean, very rich Caribbean community. And so uh, with that experience and with that culture, it also really enhanced and broadened my, my worldview um, beyond just what I had seen and come to understand as Black American culture. Sometimes when we um, think about in its totality black and brown students, we kind of just broad brush them as though they all come to us um, with the same background, with the same understandings, with the same experiences. And this is where I am, again, very um, excited to be in this space and place. And so typically when we think about higher ed, um, you know, there's a lot of theory that goes along in this space, and I think that's wonderful. Um, but my experiences have come from being a practitioner. And the beauty of our president's vision here at the university is that he has um, envisioned bringing practitioners and theorists together. And so for that, I, I often say that it's not an either or, but it's an and. I think when we bring practitioners and theorists together, we can really build out some really wonderful uh, conversations and opportunities and exposures for students. And so that's where I feel most excited and most passionate about the work that I do. On a daily basis, we're creating rigorous experiences for historically marginalized children by giving them those exposures that they would often not have and using them as ways to leverage and create excitement around the content 
and the instruction, I think, is what positions them beautifully to be more successful and more engaged in learning and to develop that love for learning. In overseeing EEI, uh, Entrepreneurial Education Initiatives, uh, with your background experience, you know, so what value or services can you provide or connect to in schools knowing the experience that you've had? So um, I've uh, observed what it's like, what it feels like to be immersed in a community where other a language other than English is spoken. Um, I am so fascinated by language linguistics personally and um, what it feels like to not understand and want to understand and to have to be in a space where you're constantly translating and so one of the units that we have in entrepreneurial education initiatives is Project Adelante. It's our bilingual Spanish program, and we engage with students as young as sixth grade all the way to 12th grade. And we're looking at it in a fresh new way in terms of not only providing rich experiences for our students, but making sure that we fold the families into it. What we never want to do is uplift our students by providing them with rigorous experiences and exclude our families. So we've built out a new unit called Generation to Generation. And that's really our holistic approach to how we provide safety nets to engage the family. And basically, um, it's supported by the two-generation strategies approach. Prior to coming into higher ed, I didn't I really didn't know about two generation strategies approaches. I just knew that when you are very thoughtful and intentional about engaging with the families, it only leads to positive outcomes in terms of student success and persistence to graduation. And so Project Analante is one example of the units that we have under EEI that really supports that work. You have created this interesting term that you've spoken about. Uh, when you presented or have had uh, talks in other places, and it's called probotunities. I think I'm saying it correctly, right? Where does probotunities come from? And how do you define that for us? So I would say probotunity is uh, more of a broader concept. I coined the term after having heard it um, myself in, in the work that I've done in the pre-K-12 space. I, I coin it and I use this expression because it begins with shifting the mindset. Oftentimes I would hear people talk about problems, right? And I don't personally view life in that from that vantage point. Um, so probabilities really is a reshaping, a reframing of how what one might traditionally think of as a problem, we meet that more as an opportunity. And so um, hence the combining of this word probability. Um, and so COVID-19, example of a probability. Um, when I think about my personal life and my personal experiences growing up and being come, becoming disengaged uh, in the secondary school space, probability, because what it did was for oftentimes, I think when we think about high school dropouts, which oftentimes one would look at me and say, you definitely don't fit that profile. But um, when you think about that, it could be a problem that one's dropping out, but I dropped out to quickly enroll in college, right? So it wasn't that I wanted to become disengaged from the learning environment. I, I sought and I um, had a hunger for a different type of a learning experience 
And so when I think about the individuals in the the learning ecosystem, I use the term problematunity because I want to reshape, I want everyone to begin to reshape their focus and their thinking around how do we take disengagement? How do we take um, uh, the home language being something other than English and turn that into an opportunity where we can create this very robust learning environment for all? Um, and how do we engage people in that process? How do we bring families together in that process? And so that's, again, when people use the term, oh, such a problem. And we often hear if students came to us more prepared, if the parents were more engaged, if the teachers, you know, had more formal training. And so then, you know, we would have different outcomes. And so that's where probability begins to reshape for us uh, how we might frame and, and think about all of those matters. So if we want students to have a richer experience, how are we providing that? Oh, Let's create an opportunity to have them engage differently in their environment. Perhaps uh, we might want to create this course where students interact more with their environment and then we can accomplish great and have a greater impact, let's say, on how we might deal with pollution just by creating um, some content around water and the impact that water has on, on them personally. And so that actually became a unit of study when I was a superintendent in Asbury Park. We'd heard a lot about um, water contaminants, water pollution, and we thought more about it on an international or from an international focus. But we have students that lived in, the, in a beach community that didn't even understand the impact of pollution in their community and how it affected the ocean and marine life. So what do we do? We created beach cleanup opportunities. We engaged them in lake preservation um, opportunities so that they would begin to connect and make that environment to self-connection in a very different way. And because we're talking about a community that was largely comprised of black and brown students in poverty, oftentimes these this idea of um, providing them with conservation and wildlife and marine life experiences tend to be thought of for more affluent communities. We found that not only did the students embrace it, but came up with ideas and approaches that we would otherwise not have. Three years ago, you and I are on the phone. And we are on the phone because we are trying to find solutions for our kids. And we're in a different realm, right? We are superintendents of urban school districts. And we're talking right after it's announced that schools will be closed for a couple of weeks, right? And you and I are on the phone saying, uh, which many urban leaders, I believe, are on the phone uh, saying, well, we have some problems that we need solutions for quick. And they were very basic at first. Food. How do we ensure that our students are getting uh, breakfast, lunch, and the ones who are getting dinner at school, which happens in urban communities, how do we get them dinner as well? How do we get them uh, access to our teachers? Uh, how do we get them devices home? I mean, the list, you and I can go on a list uh, on and on, and I haven't mentioned the word, right? But it's COVID-19, and nobody wants to hear or talk about it anymore. But there are lasting effects uh, that we are seeing now 
in public schools, in uh, state colleges, in colleges, and in work environments. Uh, tell me a little bit about the work you're doing and maybe what is what has the ripple effect been uh, by some of those decisions that we had to make uh, years ago? And um, uh, what, what are we seeing now? What is the result of that? So, yeah, he, uh, while you were talking, I was just going back in my mind's eye like, oh, my gosh, the, the, the disruption, right, that, that COVID-19 caused for the world. Uh, certainly any loss of life is never to be celebrated. So um, that is definitely uh, one of those times that I would say was the darkest, right, when we were confronted with hearing the record high numbers of the losses of life. But as I continue to reflect on it, I do see it having been the major disruptor for change. Um, it was, it, it ushered in a change that we only talked about. We, we sat around, we theorized, we had professional development about, oh, and we're going to do this and we're going to implement this practice. But when COVID-19 came in, it wasn't, we didn't have the luxury of this time, like, oh, we have to plan for for years in advance. We had to do it immediately and for an unforeseen amount of time. And so when you talked about those food insecurities, I remember, um, you know, uh, having written an op-ed piece about the invisible ones. And those were the students for whom uh, no one thought about that were on the front lines during the most tragic time in our history that we have um, our lived experiences, we had our students that were actually working as cashiers um, in, in supermarkets and stores that were open to kind of keep everything in tow when we kind of didn't really know what tomorrow was going to bring. And so, you know, there's that opportunity again that I talked to you about, right? So what are we doing? Like, how are we supporting them? Those were students that needed to work, had to work to keep things afloat at home. Uh, we also understood that students, while we want to believe that they come to school solely for learning, we also know that the school, public schools, particularly in marginalized, historically marginalized communities, provide so much more than just the education. They're providing meals, two meals a day. And in some cases, we also offered in our after-school program, snack and dinner. So three meals, um, medical and um, health supports, those comprehensive wraparound services that we provide in schools. And here we are shuttered. Our doors have been shuttered. And what are we doing? And so, um, Here's where we started to think very differently. And I know of the work you did in our neighboring town as well, Mike, where we were able to open the school up and come up with this very creative approach around grab-and-go lunches. Uh, it did provide some sort of engagement, although, again, we were also scared about how COVID was transmitted. It was a very quick approach. But we also tried to and was very successful in working with some nonprofit organizations to, um, in addition to give the grab-and-go lunch, provide some sort of enrichment activity for students to take back to their homes. It was with those enrichment activities bundled with the grab-and-go lunch where um, I started this superintendent call. We had Zoom calls. And so one of the challenges, obviously, was 
you know, we're talking about homes that didn't necessarily have Wi-Fi. So now what are we going to do to kind of get into those homes? So we had, and we knew we had families that had cell phones, but we needed something a lot more, um, a lot more technological to really um, provide the kinds of supports that we needed for this unforeseen uh, amount of time, which again, as you shared, Mike, we thought it was going to be weeks and turned into two years, right? So um, we quickly pivoted into providing these wireless devices that families could take home and access internet connectivity. We purchased the Chromebooks. We did all of these creative things. And one of the things that really became apparent, not only to me, but to our teachers, is that parent and family engagement began to look different. It looked different because as a superintendent at at the time, as a sitting superintendent, I found value in having parent meetings and going into families' homes at 6.30 p.m. on a Sunday evening. And it began to reshape for all of us the degree and the interest that our families had in their children's lives and in their education. It began to inform from a more culturally responsive lens what the experiences of the students were. You know, we talk about historically marginalized children in poverty, and we have our ideas of what it may or may not be, but when you're now in their home on a daily basis and you see how they live and they too see how you live, you begin to have some different conversations, you have different takeaways, you have different ideas about how you want to engage not only the students that are on your roster, but their siblings and their family members in a very fresh and new way. And so when I think about COVID-19, the problematicity that was created by COVID was that actual disruption, the actual thinking differently about how we create those lessons. Uh, when you talk, Barbara, about your experience being a first-generation um, American uh, coming from Guyana and being the expert in your class to talk about your culture and where your traditional garb, it started to frame for teachers. And this is one of the things I pray we don't lose. Teachers, administrators, everyone in the ecosystem, looking at students not from a deficit lens, but looking at them for what they bring into the learning environment and then how we can scale what they know, what they're expert in, into creating those experiences for other students that they can now latch onto, add, and then together we become a much more rich, um, uh, create a much richer learning experience and environment for all students. And that includes the teacher and the building administrator because we can, when we thought partner and allow students and their families to be thought partners in this work with us, we create richer, robust experiences that as educators we would have never thought of because we didn't know about those things. And um, having students really take more agency over their learning because we're all trying to figure it out makes so much of a difference. And I attribute a lot of that to, again, the disruption known as COVID-19 and how it has ushered in that change that I hope it will be sustained. 
Talk to me about the G2G endeavor and initiative that you're creating now and that link that you saw between parents and students, even in the terms of a pandemic where had we had a G2G, for instance, already in place, imagine how farther along we would have been uh, in being able to engage those students in, in the way that we needed to for us to not lose that learning experience or the learning losses, they say, right? It has happened as a result of COVID because maybe of the separation and we didn't see it as a family unit coming together and being prepared to address learning in the, in the home. So um, when we think about learning loss, I, all, I, I also reframe that too about learning learned, right? We've learned so many things in this space and um, we've, uh, we've known the benefit of ensuring that literacy at an early age is a part of and infused in um, historically marginalized homes and families uh, we know that there are, are a lot of benefits to that because of that early language acquisition piece. And so what we want to do in G2G is really support uh, families where the first language or the language at home may not be English in developing strategies for infusing rich and robust vocabulary, especially at that pivotal age of zero to three, so much research around how students learn and uh, learn language and vocabulary acquisition. And so when we think about generation to generation, we're also thinking about providing strategies for the adult learners. And um, bilingual literacy is a key piece in that. So we are providing adult literacy courses. Um, I, I tell this story oftentimes, where I had a mentor from the rural South. And um, she's, she grew up, um, every day she would share how her dad would greet her in the morning with a cup of coffee. He was reading the newspaper. And she said it wasn't until she became a principal in her 50s and reflected on that experience and... Um, she tells the story about, as her dad was making his transition, how powerful he um, saw her as a force in education to have been and um, how he loved how she embraced education. And she said, well, dad, you know, I got that from you. Every day you made a point of having coffee and reading the newspaper. And he shared in that moment, he was extremely vulnerable and shared, you know, I didn't know how to read. But I went through the motions because I knew that if you saw me reading, it would foster the love of reading for you. And uh, I share that story oftentimes because when we think about adult literacy, for whatever reason or whatever place uh, family members may be in, we have to provide them with the strategies, even if it's just a picture book and they make up a story, which I always encourage them. If you're going to take that approach, just remember the story because the children will remember if you change the story on them. So make sure as you're using your picture book, making up your stories, that you are consistent. But as we um, give them the strategies to support literacy at home, to show the value of literacy at home, we want to strengthen them. And G2G does that, and we'll do that. Um, I'm so delighted that we collaborate with you um, in the transformational leading leadership 
department and division at Kane University and through um, Anna's work here at the uh, university to provide those literacy and culturally responsive um, adult experiences and adult instruction opportunities for our families. Because again, our students are only as successful as the environments that we create for them. And if we continue to place them in rich, rigorous environments at school, what a deficit we place them at if we return them to home environments that don't also have that same rigor. And so that's why we are so committed to in generation to generation, creating that holistic learning experience so that they have those exposures in school and at home and their families have them as well. And so we're looking to um, build out career workforce readiness um, experiences for our unemployed and underemployed families. Uh, these would be reflective of a micro-credential, nine credits, a non-traditional, non-formal academic uh, credential that just really helps our students, families, get the leg up that they need to become introduced into the workforce. And then we'll continue to build out these stackable credentials so that um, if we have families that are looking to and caregivers that are looking to actually come to Kane University to pursue a degree, we want to put all of the comprehensive supports in place that they would need. One of the things that we've learned from uh, some of our students in Upward Bound, as well as Project Adelante, is that some of their families are coming to us from other countries where they have been professionals there, accountants, lawyers, doctors. But the um, review of transcripts, the process for a review of transcripts, just understanding how to navigate this space in America has been a challenge for them. And so they are significantly underemployed. They have the skills, but they don't necessarily know how to go about making those opportunities available to and for them here in the States. So generation to generation will also provide an opportunity for us to, to help them with that. We have um, partnerships in the SBDC. Uh, many of our families have also been business owners back home in the countries that they've come from. And so wherever their back home has been, how do they translate that into being a business owner here in the United States? And I'm so delighted that in your division, uh, Barbara, you have those comprehensive supports that we're able to take advantage of in generation to generation with Alex um, and Raphael in uh, the SBDC and those small business labs where we can take our families from start to finish uh, through the process of becoming entrepreneurs in America and making sure that those are realities for them. And so what happens in essence in our units is when our families come on campus, we try to bring them on to see and show them and showcase what the students are doing, but it also becomes another touch point for Kane University where they see themselves as students as well. And so it opens up this whole new world of possible that they may not have ever thought about for themselves. So then rather than just being cheerleaders of their children, which we want them to cheer their children on, we become cheerleaders for them and the entire family. And along that continuum of learning, provide those experiences and exposures for the entire family as well.
I, I've always viewed uh, the the urban centers, the urban communities as these incubators for innovation because there is so much possibility when you have people willing to change. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that because you constantly are uh, referencing a mindset. And um, about 25% of all children in New Jersey are educated in urban communities. How do we continue to uh, move the conversation forward uh, about what's happening in our urban communities uh, in a very positive way? Well, one of the things um, I think that, you know, is worth noting is the resilience and the perseverance that we find in urban centers and in the students that are served in those in those spaces and places, specifically historically marginalized uh, students. I find them to be some of the most resilient students. They're also the most creative students. And so, um, you know, thinking uh, this idea of, of how we're supporting them and thinking differently really is, it requires the constant and continuous framing of a mindset. I know I constantly say that, but it really, it really does require us to to really think differently about this work and how we approach that and how we're going about um, creating those spaces and places is really what's going to um, prevent a lot of the, I would hope, going, air quote, back to normal that I've heard um, people speak of, you know, oftentimes. Oh, once we get out of this pandemic, you know, things have to go back to the way they used to be. And um, it's really key and critical that we not lose the momentum and the traction that we have gained here um, in terms of this thinking differently, in terms of leveraging the resilience and the uh, the fortitude that uh, out that we've all demonstrated and shown during this pandemic. And so what I find to be particularly helpful is how we are going to now frame some of those learning experiences into things that can be incorporated now in our daily curriculum. For example, I mentioned uh, talking about the invisible ones and those students that were on the front lines of um, of serving their communities while simultaneously trying to learn. And so one of the ways that I think that we can and should be thinking differently about this work is through perhaps how we're using option two. Um, option two really did afford students the opportunity to persist to graduation during one of the most challenging times in our recorded history. And so I'm, I'm thinking about a student that um, during the pandemic, his father owned a roofing company. Um, the language of home was Spanish first. Uh, and so the student, because we were in this, because our doors were shuttered and the student had more opportunities to then be available to support his dad in the roofing business, we really had to come together as a team to start thinking about, well, what are the ways that we can take the skills that he's got, he's using to support his father's business in roofing, as well as running the company and all of those additional skills that are required to put that together in option two, 
which allows students a non-traditional way of accruing credits um, and is supported through the Department of Education. What is a way we can do that so that the student can persist to graduation, continue to support dad in the family business, and also go on to get credentials after graduation completion? And so um, those are some of the strategies that I would hope that we would not lose, but use uh, from having been in this space and place as a way to catapult and really create those experiences that I talked about earlier for more students without having to have had a pandemic as a driver for that. Thank you for listening to Urban Impact, a podcast produced by Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get podcasts. For more information, visit kane.edu forward slash urban dash impact.